So for those of you who've been following this series, you'll remember we're looking at the life of Jesus. So who Jesus was in his time. Um, how did they understand him and particularly his enemies? How, how did they perceive him uh, to be? And for his followers as well, what, what was the perception about Jesus? Um, what was the assumption about him and his ministry? Uh, what was the expectation around him? And I'm particularly focusing in on that sign that was put above his head on the cross, which said that this is the king of the Jews or the king of the Jews. Uh, and so what was that charge about? What was the expectation uh, around that particular charge that they they laid against him. And so we've covered a bit of that already, but where we got to last week was we looked at the the rise of the Israel or Israel as a monarchy. Um, so we've looked at their foundation and what we saw last week was was how they came to have a king in the first place. Uh, the original intention for the people of God for Israel was that they were to be a theocracy. So God would be their king and the mediators between God and the people would be the priests. But they wanted a king. Uh, like all of the other nations around them. They wanted a person to stand in that gap between them and God, somebody more, I guess, tangible for them to be able to engage with. Now, the difference was that in all of the other nations, take, for example, Egypt, which they, where they'd, they'd come out for, uh, of their slavery from, um, the pharaoh of Egypt was himself a god. And so, though being a man was also a god at the same time, and so was able to intercede with the gods because he himself was a god. And so that's a, a pretty standard sort of practice that you find in all of these ancient cultures, really up and even to Jesus' time, where you've got the imperial cult, where the emperor is at the same time a god. And so the family and the emperor is worshipped um, in temples around the Roman Empire as a way of, of honour and, and various things. We'll, we'll come to that later on. So this is a very standard practice. And so that was going to be a key point of difference for Israel and for the people of God is that, okay, you'll have a king, but he will not be a god. Um, that is idolatry. That's rule number one of the, ten, of the 10 big rules. That's rule number one. You're not going to have any gods before me. And so you're never going to worship him as a god. What he's going to be instead is a representative of the covenant. I've set out for you um, a set of laws and a set of expectations for what it means to be the people of God. And you are going to be the chief exemplar of those values of, of that way of life. Uh, and so that's your role. You are going to demonstrate and you're going to lead people into the righteousness that I require from my people. So you, you're going to lead by example. So that was going to be the expectation of the king. And so for the first at least two iterations, well, Saul, we kind of push aside because he just sort of dropped the ball in a massive way. But when we look at David and Solomon, the first two iterations of this, they, they achieved great things. David established the nation itself, the, the geographical and the sort of the political boundaries of Israel. He was able to establish that. And it was his son Solomon that, he, that really established the cult. So the idea of the religious formalities that go with worship in Yahweh, he established that primarily through building the temple. So the temple itself is God's house, but in a theocracy, it's also um, the parliament house. This is where God dwells. And as, as opposed to the other nations where 
um, the God is worshipped where the God dwells in the sense that um, gods are geographical. There's a God in that particular region over there, so we go to that region to worship that God, um, but that God doesn't really dwell anywhere else. This God is eternal, but he will reside himself in this house. But a key difference being that you're not going to make a statue of this God. We're not going to localize this God. We're not going to say that this God only exists in Jerusalem. That's where his temple is going to be, and he will fill that temple as need be. But the, this is the God that consumes, that fills the universe. And so you're not going to make an image of him because that's going to effectively control him. That's going to put him in one place and constrain him to one particular location. And that's just not how this particular God works. So Solomon had established all of that and all of that was going fine. Uh, but then his son Rehoboam comes along and really just stuffs the whole thing. Um, he, 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 The people come to Rehoboam and they say, look, your dad was a pretty harsh taskmaster. He's really working us very hard, abusing us. Will you be different to your old man? Are you going to stop those practices that he was doing? Are you going to, you know, give us a break? And his response was, well, no. In fact, because you're complaining, I'm just going to make your life even harder. And so the 10 tribes of the north said, all right, well, what part do we have with David? You're not our, you're not one of our people. And so they formed their own nation. And what we end up with are two separate nations. We've got um, Judah in the south, and then we've got sort of the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel. Um, this becomes its own autonomous nation, its own, its own particular group. Um, same as the people in the south in the sense that they're all uh, Jews, they're all descended from Abraham, they all worship Yahweh, but they're an independent nation different to Judah in the south. And so this is where we find ourselves in the story. And where I want to sort of get to this week is how these two nations fell. And so we have the rise of the monarchy. We have this the rise of this sort of this nation of Israel. But then a century, a few centuries later, we also have its collapse. And we'll condense the story, obviously, um, sort of just to touch on the highlights, but really just to sort of show where we where we sort of get to um, by Jesus' time, why um, the the political nation of, of Israel looks significantly different to what it was um, in, in this previous time. So to really get the sense of the cultural um, milieu that we find ourselves in at this time, you've got to have an, get an understanding of really, I guess, all of human history. And one of the central features that we find really through all of human history, I guess even still up to the to today in some senses, maybe not so overtly, but in some cases we do. The story of human history is really just a story of empires. It's a story just of empire and conquest. And so for all of human history, what we find is the rise and the fall of empires. This has been the ongoing story. Wherever there are human civilizations, there's going to be empires. There's always going to be somebody who's going to conquer the people down the road. And whether it be on a small scale or eventually on a large scale covering huge ge geographical uh, realms, there's always going to be empires. And so really it's a case of you are the empire in charge or you're the one being subdued. That, that's really just how humans have always existed. It's always been in the context of, of some kind of empire. And 
where this really sort of comes from, there's a great little verse in 2 Samuel 11, 1 that says, in the springtime, kings go off to war or when kings go off to war. Now, it's it's a verse you, it's a story you'd be familiar with. It's a, maybe not a verse you're familiar with, but the story you'd be familiar with because this is the story of David and Bathsheba. And so the whole story of David and Bathsheba is prefaced on this little very understated throwaway comment of in the springtime when kings go off to war. So there's this expectation that in spring you go to war. That's the campaign season. So everybody, you know, in the same way that, you know, you wake up in the morning, everybody goes to work in the springtime, everybody goes to war. Now, the reason for this is that it's springtime, it's coming into summer, and in an agrarian society, you've sown your the seeds, you've, you've basically, you've sown the fields, and there's nothing else you can do for six months. Now you're just waiting for the plants to grow. You're literally, you if you wait at home, you're literally standing around watching the grass grow. And so there's not a whole lot you can do. And so in that um, in the warmer seasons, that's the time when you go to the village down the road and you pick a fight with them and see what you can get. Um, the goal will be to get some uh, more maybe food for yourself and certainly get more any sort of precious items, any valuable metals, and in particular to go and get more slaves, more workers for you to be able to bring back to help you with the harvest. So that's a standard thing that all of humans are doing. Every spring, spring in springtime, kings go off to war. This is where we get the, the month of March from. Uh, March is named after the god Mars. Now, Mars was the god of war in the Roman pantheon. Uh, and so in springtime, when in the Northern Hemisphere, when the beginning of spring, uh, that's when everyone's going off to war. And so that month gets named after the God of War because this is the time when everybody goes to war. So the point of the story in 2 Samuel is that this is when David was supposed to be going to war. He was supposed to be leading his armies either to conquer a neighboring civil neighboring city or, or, or town uh, or to defend the people against those who are trying to, to to fight them. Either way, you're either defending or you're attacking, but you're off at war. And the point was that he should have been out there campaigning. He should have been out there leading his armies like all of the other kings were. Instead, he was at home and, well, the rest is history as far as Bathsheba is concerned. And so the point here is that this is a tale of empires and the story of Israel is a story of empires. They were, uh, if you again, if you look at, Israel on a map, it is a postage stamp. Geographically, it's such a tiny little plot of land in the context of the Middle East. It really is just this little cork bobbing on the ocean. And so really the story of Israel is a story of them being sort of pushed to and fro between these warring empires and really just sort of um, ultimately succumbing to the pressure and the will of these much vaster empires that that are around them. In a sense, the story of David is a story where they sort of pushed back, where they sort of stood their own ground and, and weren't being pushed around. They, they really sort of, they took hold of their particular piece of land and they expanded it somewhat, but really just stood their ground against these, uh, these sort of warring groups that were around them. But as the story continues, eventually they collapse as a result of these, these increasingly large empires. Um, and so that's kind of where we want to take our story today in the sense of how does Israel will ultimately collapse. Now, one more important element of empire. Empires are actually really simple. Um, in fact, there's only two rules. If you're living in an empire, there's only really two rules 
that you need to abide by. Keep the peace, pay the taxes. That's really it. In fact, for most of these empires, they're very happy for you to continue on as you are. Worship your traditional gods. In fact, we're happy for you to keep your own leaders, keep your own kings. The only difference will be that that king works for us. Now, that king is chosen from your own people, but they're a client. They're there because of our good, because of our mercy, because of our good graces. Now, it could be the king that was in place when we invaded, or if that king was particularly seditious and pushed back against us, we're going to remove that king and we're going to put in a king in place of that one who's going to be more um, favorable to us. What we what we don't want is somebody who's constantly causing us problems. We are happy for you to live the way that you've always lived, worship the gods that you've always worshipped, but just keep the peace. Don't start insurrections. Don't start any sort of um, subversive tactics or any of these sorts of things. Just carry on as you are, live in peace and basically abide by that simple rule and you'll do fine. And then the second rule, pay your taxes. And that's really what these empires are about is the tribute. Um, they don't want to have to do all of the political bureaucracy. They, they don't want to have to have you know massive bureaucracies of their own people administering these great empires they're very happy for all the local people to do this on their behalf again so long as they keep the peace so long as it's it, they they remember that who they're working for they they're not working for their own people they're working now for the new empire and one of and they really their key task is apart from keeping the peace is to collect the tribute collect the taxes and so long as the tribute is flowing as long as the taxes are coming in and the empires get richer we're okay and, and and you know ostensibly what that tribute is being used for is to pay for the administration pay for the armies that are protecting this empire um, the an empire is going to protect its own boundaries and so in protecting those boundaries everybody living within that is themselves protected and so you know I mean we've, we've got a very um, very negative view of of empire and with with all of the, certainly with the more recent history of of empires around the world but there's also benefit in the sense that you've got this larger organization that is protecting you that you know it, Every spring, in springtime, kings go off to war. You can expect that the city up the road is going to come down to try to attack you or try to plunder you. Well, if you've got this larger empire that's protecting their interests and in doing that protecting your interests, well, then that's a benefit. That is one of the upsides of paying tax, paying the tribute in the same way that we pay taxes to the government. Um, th those taxes are ideally there to provide the, the larger um, bureaucratic or the larger infrastructural things that we need in, in order to live somewhat peaceably. Um, certainly to pay for armies that protect us so that we can live in peace. So for all of these things, it, that's, that's always been the case when it comes to, to an empire. So keep the peace, pay the taxes. Those are the two essential rules, really the only two rules of, of, of how an empire works. And as long as you uh, abide by those rules, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll, your life can carry on as it always has for, for generations. So the story then of Israel and of Judah is this story. They are 
um, two very, very tiny now, there used to be one small nation, now they're two even smaller nations in the midst of these expanding empires. And what we're finding in this part of the world, around the Middle East, this is really where, it's what's called the cradle of civilization. It's because it, where you find the fertile crescent, this is where humans stopped being, in many cases, well, in, in, at least in this area, stopped being hunter-gatherers and started to... Um, just started to farm, actually started to create cities or, or villages and cities and, and larger um, groups of people living together in the one place. That's the first place where that really starts to happen. And so it's from that through through the these, these cities or these villages becoming cities and then becoming larger and larger, this is where we start to find these increasingly large empires taking place. And so again, Israel and Judah are sort of sort of stuck in the middle of all of this, these larger empires that are going on around them. So the first major one of these empires that we we find in our story is the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire lasts somewhere between about 911 to 627 BC, thereabouts. Now, of course, these dates are, uh, they're not guesswork, but they're also very ambiguous because we don't have a date where somebody said, okay, we're going to start an empire now. And then there's a date where it all just ended overnight. Um, You know, obviously these things evolve and we're talking about a 300 year span of this empire. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the thing we ought to think of keep in mind as well, just the ex- the extent, the length of time that these things take place. I mean, we, you know, we think about in today's world where, you know, in a day, a hundred different things can happen in our lives. These guys are talking about things happening over a span of 300 years and really just remaining the same for 300 years, really nothing changing at all with this, this, this one single entity that is, that is controlling the region. And so this empire really expands around what is the Middle East. And so naturally within that consumes um, Israel and, and Judah. And so we read about this in 2 Kings 15, where the king of this Assyrian empire, Tiglath-Pilsar, um, he says to the king of Israel, all right, look, we can destroy you or you can carry on as you are and just pay us tribute. And so that's what happens at least to begin with, um, the, the king of Israel says, all right, that's fine. You're obviously an empire and we're not. Um, and so we're going to play it, you know, play it smart and pay you tribute. But then a few years later in 725, um, King Hoshea, he's, um, he's sort of trying to hedge his bets a little bit. He's, he's got this Assyrian empire over to his east, but then sort of down sort of south in the west, he's also got the Egyptians who are still a bit of a powerhouse in the region as well. And so he changes his allegiance to Egypt, which was his first major mistake. Now, that's an insurrection. That is um, subversive. That is um, to turn against this empire that you are currently paying tribute to and he if in fact stops paying tribute to the Assyrians well again there's only two rules of empire keep the peace pay the taxes well he's just violated both he's just turned against his effectively his masters I mean he's, he's a client king he's only there by the good graces of 
the king of Assyria, uh, and then he's stopped paying the taxes. Well, there are consequences for that. Um, you know, you can live in peace so long as you do those two things, but when you don't do those two things, that's going to end really badly for you, and that's exactly what happens. And so they besiege, the Assyrians besiege uh, um, the capital of Israel, Samaria, for three years, and then eventually... Um, they collapse. Now, this besiege in a city is a pretty standard sort of tactic you're going to get in, in most of these ancient times. Um, it's just basically surround the city, cut off the food supply, cut off the water supply and starve them out. Eventually, they're going to have to come out to get food and at which point they're either going to surrender or they're going to fight and we're going to kill them. But either way, it's going to end badly for them because if they're putting up a fight after three years of siege, they're going to be pretty malnourished. They're not going to really be able to put up much of a fight. They're going to be pretty broken. And so we're going to win pretty comfortably. And what it means is we don't have to go in there and try to climb walls and put ourselves at great risk. We can keep our army sitting outside, stopping those guys from coming out. We can get plenty of food supplied to us and we can just wait it out. We've got nothing else to do. We're very happy to, to wait around for three years. And so after three years, Israel or Samaria is eventually uh, conquered and captured. And as a result of that, the nation is done. The, the nation is, is taken over by the Assyrians. Now, down in the south, King Hezekiah, he's under the same threat. He Remember, um, Judah in the south is an, is an entirely different nation. And so Hezekiah, he, he sees what's going on here and he says, look, hey, I'm, I'm going to keep paying the tribute. Whatever you guys you do to Israel, that's not us. We're, we're a different thing. And we read about this actually. In fact, it's quite a sad story. He goes and strips the temple out, takes all of the, all of the valuable materials out of the temple and uses that to pay tribute to this same king of Assyria to avoid the fate that that he's just seen these guys go through. But the consequences of this conquer are really devastating. Uh, what, what the king does, what, what the Assyrians do, is they take all of the, or the majority of the people of Israel and they take them out, they, they, they take them into exile. But it's not sort of a, a, an exile where they just take them all on mass as a single group and move the whole group somewhere else. What they do is they scatter them. And this is one of the Assyrian tactics. Uh, rather than, you know, just move a, a whole people group from one place to another, what he does is that they scatter them throughout their empire. And this is a vast empire. And so they send small groups to all different parts of the empire. So all of those 10 tribes that were, that formed the North, the Northern Kingdom are all sort of literally scattered to the winds. And the idea of this is that by sending them out in smaller groups, it's harder for them to maintain their identity. They, they have to assimilate. They have to um, blend into these new um, cities and new um, places in which they find themselves in order to survive. They, they, they don't have the strength in numbers to be able to maintain their original identity. And so very quickly within a generation they become the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They, they literally disappear off the face of the earth. They're, they're, they're gone forever. Um, and so whatever those tribes were are now gone. They, they just simply don't exist anymore. But the story doesn't stop there. In the same way that the, the 10 tribes of Israel were scattered to the winds through the Assyrian Empire, in the same way people would be moved back, in, in, back into, um, into Samaria. 
you know, back into Israel. And so what he's done is what the king has done is taken um, other people groups and they've moved those guys into into the region. They've moved them into um, into Israel. Now there are still some Israelites left in the region, but now they've been overwhelmed by all of these foreigners who are coming in and most importantly coming in with all of their foreign gods. Now it's a really interesting story that we find here. They, they come in with all of their foreign gods and we read the story about how um, God is just not obviously not impressed with that and so he sends lions to go and devour all of these people who are worshiping these foreign gods in what is God's land. And so, you know, whatever the the reality of that story was, the point of it is quite clear that you don't bring your foreign gods into here. If you're going to come here, you're going to worship the God of this particular place. And the only way that they understand that is, again, this geographical idea of gods. They they realize or they talk to the priests of the Jewish priests in the area and they say, so what's going on? They say, well, our regional God is Yahweh. And so if you're going to come over here, you have to worship this God. And so they say, well, well, that's fine. You know, I mean, if that's the God of the region, we know how the game works. And so we're going to worship this God instead. And so they adopt, they adopt instead Yahweh. They, they come to worship him and take on that whole cult and create kind of their own form of it. Um, they create their own um, sort of way of doing um, this sort of, this sort of Yahweh cult. They establish a new temple on Mount Gerizim, and eventually this kind of becomes sort of a hybridized version of the worship of Yahweh, but in a new language, which is Aramaic, but also the people themselves become something of a sort of half-caste, for want of a better word, um, people group, which are a mixture of the original occupants of the land, the Israelites, but then also these foreigners as well. So the the Israelites that are left, the generations that come after them are increasingly sort of intermixed with these sort of surrounding people. They sort of lose that original heritage that goes back to Abraham and become, well, as we move the story forward, become Samaritans. And so when we read later on about the Samaritans that we meet in the Gospels, this is their origin story. This is how they came to be in that region. Uh, and, and a small group is still there today, even in today, in modern modern day Israel. So that's one of the key changes that takes place. Um, and so we find the sort of remnants of that story later on when we get to the Gospels. But as, uh, the key thing to take away from this is that this is the di- the dispersion, this is the removal or the destruction of 10 of the tribes of Israel, again, never to be restored. Now, in the story of Israel itself, or in the expectation of Israel itself, you go. We find that this this hope that the ten tribes will be restored. And we're going to f- sort of pick up on that story later on when we get to the twelve apostles. If you think about the twelve disciples of Jesus, well, who are they? Well, they are the representatives of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so there's a there's sort of this hope that's being held out that all of the 12 tribes would be restored. Uh, And so that's what sort of the disciples come to represent. But again, we'll come to that later on. But one of the key uh, remnants, one of the key changes um, that also takes place 
in this empire, in this Assyrian empire, is that Aramaic becomes the lingua franca. So the, the, the standard language of the region or the second language really for everybody in the region now becomes Aramaic. And again, when we come to Jesus later on, Jesus' first language was Aramaic. He, he probably would have spoken Greek, maybe a bit of Hebrew, but primarily these guys, all of the disciples are Aramaic speakers. And the reason for that is because of the Assyrian Empire, because that's that becomes the language of that empire. And that really stays. So all of the empires that come now are coming into this, what has been as an, an established Aramaic speaking region. Right, so that's our first empire, and that, and really the, the consequence of that, as we saw, was the destruction of the ten tribes. That's where we lose the, the, the northern kingdom, really never to be seen again, ultimately. But then this is a story of empires, and so there's a new empire that comes eventually, and they become the new power in the region. And this is one we might be more familiar with. This is the Babylonian Empire. And the story of this really it does sort of happen quite suddenly. It happens in a very short space. So in 626 BC, um, the, the the Babylonian general Nabopolassar, um, he... He, he's, he, he and his Babylonians are part of this Assyrian Empire. Everyone's part of the Assyrian Empire, including the Babylonians, and they just say, well, enough's enough. Now, just to give you some perspective, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Okay, so Iraq is what used to be Babylon. Uh, and so Nabopolassar, he just says, well, no, we're not going to stand for this. And so he pushes back, he revolts against Assyria and joins with uh, sort of some of the other groups that are also not happy about the fact that they are in this Assyrian empire. And they sort of band together and in a short space of time overthrow the Assyrians. So Babylon becomes once again its own autonomous state, its own autonomous region. They take over the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is Nineveh, and they now become the new powerhouse in town. And so what used to be the Assyrian Empire has now been subsumed into this new empire, which is the Babylonian Empire. Now, that's all good and well if you're a Babylonian, but for everybody else, nothing's really changed. Um, you're still in an empire. It's only that you well, it's Babylonians now. It used to be Assyrians. Now it's Babylonians. But the rules of empire haven't changed. There's still only two rules of empire. Keep the peace, pay the taxes. That's all you've got to do. Uh, and so that's all still standard um, in this area. Only the difference now is that, well, there's no more Israel. What we've got is Judah in the south, an even smaller little tiny little kingdom south of what used to be Israel, um, well, now their pressure that they're receiving used to be from the Assyrians. The tribute they were paying was to the Assyrians. And now this small group is now under Babylonian rule. Now, remembering that the two tribes in the south are uh, Judah and also Benjamin. Those are the only two surviving tribes of the original 12 tribes. So these two groups can, in fact, trace their descendancy back to Abraham. And that's a very important thing. If you remember, it's about the, being the people of God is about ethnicity. And so these people are still genuinely ethnic Jewish people. And that's something that's very important for them to hold on to. And as we're going to see, it's something they're able to maintain under this new empire. So in 605, um, Nabopolassar, who was this great general who's sort of restored the Babylonian nation, um, he dies and his son Nebuchadnezzar 
takes control. So this is this is be a name you'd be familiar with from your Old Testament. So Nebuchadnezzar now becomes the new king, the new ruler of this growing Babylonian empire, and he ultimately is the one who finally overthrows kind of a, a last stand Assyrian and Egyptian allegiance. So Assyria and Egypt have seen that the writing's on the wall, Babylon's the new power in town, and so they form uh, an alliance to try to stand against this new Babylonian force, but they're ultimately destroyed. And so the people of Judah who were under the Assyrians, but also somewhat, you know, within the realms of Egypt as well, they go, well, okay, we're going to be changing our allegiance now. So we read about this in 2 Kings 24, um, where King Jehoiakim, um, Jehoiakim, the king of, of Judah, he changes his allegiance now over to Babylon. He doesn't really have any choice in the matter. Um, they are the only power that you can be subservient to, um, but they he gives his allegiance to them, and so same rules apply. Keep the peace, pay the taxes, only now you're doing that for the Babylonians. So that's all good and well. Everything's going, traveling along fine. You're paying your tribute to the Babylonians. Things go on as normal. Um, but then something happens where the Babylonians try to push further into Egypt and are actually ultimately repelled. And so now Jehoiakim thinks, well, maybe Egypt is the people that I should be aligned with, not the Babylonians. Maybe I need to be aligned now with Egypt. They, maybe they're a more powerful um, a more powerful force. And this is the problem when you're living amongst not just in an empire, but when there's other empires around, you kind of got to hedge your bets. You kind of got to go pick the pick the this, or, or do your best to try to pick the outcome of what what's going to happen next. And so, when Babylon and Egypt go to war, and it seems like Egypt is the stronger force, well, maybe those are the guys that I need to be siding with because you know, if I if if I side against them and they become the new power, then they get. It's all very, it's all sort of a, a a gamble. It's all sort of a trying to you know read the the stars as to what's going to happen next. And so he takes a gamble and he chooses Egypt, which was a massively wrong bet because Egypt um, is ultimately sort of overthrown by the Babylonians. And so as retribution, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, "All right, you know you chose Egypt over us." you're going to pay. And so in 597, he takes Jehoiakim and his family and takes those guys and, and many others into exile in Babylon. And in his place, he makes Zedekiah the king. Now, again, this is a client king, somebody who is, well, the other guy wasn't paying the taxes and wasn't keeping the peace. You will because, well, you're here because of us. We put you here and you owe us. And so we, we've got some a client king in place who's going to follow the rules. Well, anyway, that's all fine. 597, you've got a new king, um, Zedekiah, all, all is going well. But then in 588, things go wrong again. Zedekiah defects from Babylon. And well, this is once bitten, twice shy. I mean, you, you fool me once, fool me twice kind of scenario. Ne Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he says, look, we've been here before. You know what happens when you rebel against me, this time it's going to be much more serious. The situation for Judah was that they were a client state. They could carry on as they were, live in their land, carry on, worship the God, their God, and you know all of that would be fine. Just keep the peace and pay the taxes. But clearly you guys are incapable of doing that. And so now you're going to be destroyed. 
And so as a result of that, Jerusalem is destroyed, the people are taken into exile, and what was the land of Judah, remembering how important land is to the story of Israel and to the identity of Israel, that land is now consumed into the Babylonian Empire. The land, of course, doesn't disappear, only now it's not the land of Israel anymore. It doesn't belong to its people anymore. It's now occupied by other people. It's now part of this great Babylonian empire. In fact, it's even renamed as Yehud, right? It's, 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 it doesn't even have the memory of having once been this nation of Israel. And so it's needless to say, at this point of the story, this is just devastating. The land is what makes the people of God the people of God. You can't be a nation without land. And they don't have land anymore and they don't live there anymore. And this this small sort of remnant of what used to be 12 tribes, which is now down to two tribes, many of those two tribes have been killed through this conquest that has just taken place. This last little group that remains have now been taken off into exile in Babylon. So they don't even live in their land anymore. They've now been taken off literally into the heartland of paganism, the heartland of the enemy. They don't have the temple with them anymore. They don't have the things that made them um, unique and that enabled them to, to worship Yahweh properly. All of that's been taken away from them. All that's left is their ethnic identity as Jewish people, as the descendants of Abraham, and Torah. That, that's all they have left. They just have God's requirements for them. Everything else now has been taken away. So then the question they naturally ask is, uh, has God forgotten about us? Has God abandoned us? Uh, All those promises that he made to Abraham, the promises that he made to Moses, the covenant that he established with us, is that gone? Is it all over? Is, Is this where the story ends? Have we failed so badly that God has just given up on us altogether? So there's a legitimate existential crisis that's taking place here. To be the people of God, you need all of these things. And God had promised that to them. He had said, you will, have, you will be my people, you'll have a land, all of these things. Now all of that's gone. The only possible conclusion that you can draw is that God has abandoned them. God has, God has they've broken the covenant. God's gone. You know what? All right, we're done. That's it. Forget it. You guys enjoy your exile. And so it's during this time that the prophets begin to arise. This this is the context where we find Isaiah saying, look, things are going to go really, really badly for you because of your continual sin, but God won't God won't forget about you. God is not going to abandon you completely. You're going to go through a very hard time. You're going to be punished for your sins. Let's be really clear about that. But God will never abandon you. So the prophets become very important at this stage to keep reminding the people, particularly in their exile, that this isn't the end of the story. It's a terrible scenario that they're going through. It's the lowest point of the story. But there is going to be, there is a hope that God is going to restore you back to being his people. So this is where we find ourselves then in sort of this story. We're at the lowest point of Israel's history. They've they've been taken away from their land. All they have left is this small ethnic group of of Jewish people. In fact, sort of as a side note, the, the story of Babylon is so devastating in the Jewish psyche. It's such a, a horrific part of their history to this point, that Babylon becomes a byword. Babylon becomes a a name that you attribute to something that is the 
darkest, most evil form of paganism and the most oppressive thing working against the people of God that you can imagine. And so we find later on in the New Testament where we talk, where they talk about Rome, they call it Babylon. Particularly in Revelation, you find this constant reference to the Bab- to, to Babylon and this power of Babylon. You go, what are you even talking about? It's talking about Rome because Rome is the new Babylon because Rome is ultimately doing to the Jewish people what the Babylonians had done all those centuries ago. So it's 586 and um, as far as the, the people are concerned, this is the end of the story. But as we know, that's not the end of the story. There, there, there was always this promise that was being held out that they were going to be restored and that seems to have happened, or at least there seems to be the first signs of that happening in the year 538. Now, what takes place prior to that in 553 is that there's a new empire, again, story of empires, the new empire, the new superpower in the region from what is modern-day Iran, but at the time was the Persian Empire. So King Cyrus, um, the king of the Persians, he's, he sort of become sort of takes his forces into this Babylonian empire, ultimately conquers it. And so after a series of sort of conquests of other smaller empires in the region, eventually Persia now becomes the great superpower and what was um, the largest empire up until that point, the, the, the Persian Empire is just simply massive and expands, I mean, across the Middle East right up into Europe, up into Macedonia. It's just an enormous, enormous empire. And so once again, the, the people of God, the Jewish people, are now part of a new empire. Only the difference here is that when the Persians take Babylon, this small remnant of Jewish people, well, they're not... They're not Persian captives. They're Babylonian captives. They've done nothing against the Persians. And so as a way of sort of establishing their good faith or establishing um, a a good rapport with these Jewish people, they say to them, well, you guys can go home if you want to. You don't have to stay in Babylon. This is not where you're from. You can go home. In fact, we read this really great account of of how how this sort of takes place. So this is all under King Cyrus. Cyrus actually says it's in 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with him. So this is really an extraordinary story. In 538, Cyrus, King Cyrus, allows these Jewish people, the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem and says to them, I'll build you your temple. He actually funds their temple. And so anyone that wants to go back is welcome to go back. Here's the money and here's the materials to build the temple. Off you go. Now, of course, that's a benefit to Cyrus because he gets people back into their homeland and they can establish that and they can make sure that that's a flourishing part of his empire. And so that's obviously a massive benefit to him, but also it means that they're incredibly loyal to him. In fact, the the way that Cyrus is spoken about in the Old Testament, he's almost spoken about as a Messiah figure. He's almost presented as a savior for them because he, in some ways he was. And so the result of this then is that many of the Jews, many of this remnant that have been taken into exile actually return back to Jerusalem. But there's also a new development that emerges which becomes essential to the rest of our story. And this is the fact that many of them actually don't go home. 
there's there's a, a large cohort of of Jewish people in Babylon. They estimate maybe about forty two thousand go back, but many, many, many more of them actually stay in Babylon. And as a, sort of as the generations go on, start to spread out through this increasing. Persian Empire. Now, the question you might ask yourself is, why did they stay back? Well, think about 70 years. 70 years is a long time. That's a couple of generations of people. So all of the people that were brought into exile in Babylon are now dead. Now, their children might have heard the stories about um, Jerusalem and, you know, back to the, to the homeland. And so they would have had probably some sense of wanting to go back. And, and the stories, of course, would have been continued on throughout, um, throughout the exile. All of the people would have sort of stuck together and, and sort of, you know, with this hope of returning, continued to tell the stories. And so some of them would have gone back. But for, many, for, the, for all of them, uh, well, actually, for, pretty much for everyone by that point, they would have been people who were born in exile. They would have been born in Babylon. They would have spoken Aramaic. They wouldn't have spoken Hebrew. And they're living in Babylon. I mean, Babylon gets a bad rap in the Old Testament only because of what they did to the Jewish people. But by all other accounts, Babylon was the most incredible city of its time, one of the most incredible cities of, of history. Um, I mean, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so this is an incredibly diverse, inc uh, incredibly sort of uh, wealthy metropolis of people from all over the world. I mean, all of the greatest ideas and all of the greatest technologies are all happening in Babylon. It's the place to be. It's, it's, it's a modern-day New York or London or whatever great cities come to mind. That's what Babylon was. And so it would have been a great place to live. And so if you've got a choice of you living in the greatest city in human history or you can go back to this destroyed Jerusalem and re really rebuild it from scratch – what, there's no choice there. For so many of them, they're going to stay in Babylon. That's, that's where that's what they know. That's where their lives have been established. And so, well, of course, that's where we're going to be. And it's kind of like for, for uh, sort of a second or third generation uh, of, a, of an immigrant family. Somebody's moved into a new country, a new culture, and sort of the second or third generation is like, well, you know, ethnically, yes, their heritage comes from a different part of the world. But then to say to them, well, you need to go, you're going to go back and live in the homeland. It's like, well, my homeland is here. You know, I don't speak that language. I'm not part of that culture. I've, I've grown up and my whole world is here. And so for many of the Jews, again, this is where they're going to stay because that's all they know. This, this has become the only world that they, they are aware of. And so this has a really significant result then for the people. What that means is that the majority of this uh, ethnically Jewish people group become what we call the diaspora, the, the, or literally the dispersed, the scattered ones. They stay in Babylon or they eventually sort of move out into um, around the Persian Empire. And then eventually, as the story continues, we find uh, Jewish communities established all over the ancient world, all over the, the um, uh, all through the sort of the Greek Empire, eventually the Roman Empire. Um, you've got this whole this whole people group um, in set up in cities all over all over the ancient world. And so then we find ourselves almost um, back at the starting point. Um, it's, this is almost, this almost is the, not really a plan B, but take two of the Jewish people. Um, the original 
take one was God establishes a, a nation and you know David becomes the king and everything that we've just talked about, but they blew it. They they utterly blew it, and we've lost the whole northern part of or, or the, the whole all of the ten northern tribes. All of them uh, have been scattered to the winds, and then what we have left now in what used to be. Judah in what used to be the southern kingdom with the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, well, that's all that we have left. And of those that were there prior to the exile, now we've even got only a fraction of those that have returned. For the majority of the ethnically Jewish people now, they're living outside of this and increasingly spread throughout the empires of the Mediterranean. And so you can imagine that there's going to be some new challenges that these people are faced. You've got the challenge on the one hand of those who've gone back to Jerusalem, the challenge of rebuilding, re-establishing not just their land and not just the temple, but re-establishing themselves as a people. Who are we now that we've been through this, this exile? What does it mean? How do we get there in the first place? And, and importantly, how do we avoid that? How does that never, ever, ever happen again? And so you've got this identity crisis or this existential crisis that they're, they're facing and having to rebuild themselves, reestablish themselves now um, back, in the, back in the homeland. But for many, many more of the Jewish people, not returning to Jerusalem, not going back to the site of the temple, who are now living increasingly scattered throughout these pagan cities and these, these foreign lands, how do you become Jewish? How do you remain Jewish? In those places, certainly without the land and without the temple, how do you remain Jewish within that part, within those parts of the world? And so that's a different set of challenges. It's an entirely different uh, situation that those guys are having to face. And so for both of them, what we find is over the centuries, this sort of um, new identity being created, this new way of being the people of God, this new way of doing what becomes Judaism, doing re new ways of doing uh, the worship of Yahweh. And so that's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to start to unpack, you know, this, this sort of this new generation now of the Jewish people and really start to see how the cultural uh, elements that are formed and developed through this, how that ultimately sort of leads us to where we find ourselves in the time of Jesus. So join me for that, but otherwise have a great week and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.